Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. We are going to continue talking about that breaking news story. As you just heard, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum has now been charged with public mischief. It has to do with an incident that allegedly took place in the parking lot of a Save on Foods. And take a listen just before we get to our first guest, who is Surrey City Councillor Jack Hundile. Take a listen. This is just a small bit of an interview Doug McCallum did with Global News reporter Catherine Urquhart. This interview done in October, but again, Doug McCallum talking about the incident, what he says happened in that parking lot. So as she she pulled out and, and turned right, she clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time and then took off. Um, what I did then is I um, decided that I uh, phoned the police um, and... Um, and um, I, I'm always hesitant to phone 911 and, and, um, because, you know, I really didn't know. I, I was shocked sort of thing, and I didn't know. So what I did is I went in, um, I did some grocery shopping, just a quick three things, um, bought them, um, brought them out to my car, then phoned 911. Um, and um, the lady was very good. She said, you got to immediately get to the hospital. Um, because I, I screamed, uh, uh, um, and um, she said, I'll get an officer right away on the line to phone you. All right, that was Doug McCallum, again, speaking with global reporter Catherine Urquhart about what he says happened on September 4th. He now faces a charge of public mischief in connection to that incident. Let's bring on Jack Hundile, a Surrey City Councillor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill. Good afternoon. What is your reaction to this news? Not entirely surprising. Um, We knew the special prosecutor um, was appointed and uh, uh, the investigation revealed, I think, a lot of people, including what we heard from uh, rumors from people that were there at the scene, that uh, uh, this incident didn't quite uh, transpire as described by uh, Mayor McCallum just recently, like uh, before we got online here. Uh, the mayor has put out a very short statement when asked about this today. The statement says, we are in the middle of changing from RCMP to the Surrey Police Service. And as this matter is before the courts, I will not be making any comment. What are your thoughts on that statement? Well, he's entitled to a statement and, uh, and he is correct. These are just charges that yet there is not a conviction. But I mean, if there's a conviction, uh, you know, potentially looking up to five years, if convicted for the criminal code offence. Um, and it's for making really a false statement. So um, I understand that, and I think the public does understand that. But at the end of the day, when you reach a certain point as an elected official, official, and as not only the mayor of the city of Surrey, but also the chair of the Surrey Police Board, uh, you know, I do not believe he has the moral authority to, to really govern any furthers, and he needs to step down. So you're calling for mayor to, to are you calling for him to resign or to step down until this issue is resolved? No, no, I, I think he just needs to step down. He needs to resign. This is a, a clear call from me to the mayor to do the right thing for the public, for uh, democracy in the city of Surrey and resign as mayor of uh, the city of Surrey. Uh, he's charged with this uh, again it's a charge of public mischief he's not been convicted of anything he's not been found guilty of anything he has a court appearance coming up in january uh, what would you say that somebody to to uh, perhaps the argument that somebody is innocent presumed innocent mm-hmm. unless proven guilty and that he could continue doing his job while this process continues yep and he certainly is entitled to do that and 
and the way the um, the community charter is written, um, he can continue to uh, be the mayor for the city of Surrey, uh, um, and unless he's found guilty of. But I'm talking about an actual moral authority um, to do the right thing, um, to step up and do the right thing. You know, there are mechanisms within uh, the community charter for the city to continue to be governed by the council, but he really needs to uh, to resign at this point. Uh, the evidence is certainly overwhelming, um, I think, uh, but uh, certainly it's up to the courts to decide on that. But uh, he really does not have the moral authority to continue to govern for the city of Surrey. Uh, when you say the evidence is overwhelming, have you seen anything as far as I was told there is video of what happened and that is part of this investigation? Have you seen video or seen any of the evidence? Um, well, I have not seen the video. But uh, certainly as a, someone who's a police officer for over 25 years, when you hear to, uh, you know, the witnesses that were there uh, that have reached out at different times, um, including even if you look at what was presented in the video that was shot, I think, the day after and subsequently on the Monday, so on the Sunday and Monday, and one video he is uh, pointing to one foot and the other video is pointing to the other foot. So I think if, it, if no one didn't pick up on that, they can go back and look at that. And you can see clearly that uh, if you're injured, um, in an incident, uh, the injuries should be pretty consistent. Is there anything council can do if this somehow unified council and if other councillors agreed with you in wanting the mayor to resign? Is there anything council can do or is it something that has to be done by the mayor? Uh, it has to be done by the mayor. Uh, certainly council can ask for his resignation. And like I said, uh, this goes back to an issue of uh, having the moral authority and really, when you when you don't have the public trust anymore, because certainly I can tell you he doesn't have my trust, uh, uh, and I'm not only an elected official, also a taxpayer in the city of Surrey. Um, that's a that's a really really uh, concerning issue for anyone when people lose faith in government. Uh, you know what? If on his first court appearance on January 25th, if it gets dismissed or discharged, that's one thing. Then by all means, come back. But there's a there's this huge cloud um, uh, over your head, which is that you're charged. And I think that there's certainly the reaction that, that I'm seeing to it, to this story. There are other people saying that as well. But there's nothing in, in law, nothing that, that says somebody who has faced a charge, who has even been convicted of something or is currently facing a charge, there's nothing to say that they cannot hold a position of counsel or a position of elected office. So do you think that needs to change? Absolutely. I mean, this, this is another deficiency in our community charter across the province. Um, there are similar incidents with uh, mayors, in fact, being charged in this term um, that had to negotiate uh, sort of different venues to get back into council. Uh, in this particular case, uh, like I said, it is before the courts. Um, but there is also uh, your own uh, integrity, um, you know, in order to instill the faith in the city uh, that you should set down. Because really, as a representative, as a lead representative for the city of Surrey, going out to other communities, levels of government, um, and advocating for the city when you yourself are facing charges, really no other organization uh, would tolerate that nowadays. So going back to your question, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the community charter for a situation such as this. Uh, when is the next council meeting scheduled for? Next council for December 20th. And do you imagine that this will be an issue or a topic or discussed at that meeting? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if it isn't, I'll be raising it myself. All right. Councillor Hundile, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much mm-hmm. for joining us to talk about this. Thank you. So as she, she 
pulled out and, and turned right. She clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time and then took off. All right, that was Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum speaking in October. He was talking to Global News about an incident he says took place in the Save on Foods parking lot on September 4th. We've been talking about this today because, as you've heard on the news and on this program, Doug McCallum has now been charged with public mischief, and he's got a court date set for January. So let's bring in John Green, who is a lawyer at the John Michael Green Law Group. Thank you so much for joining us on such short notice. Hey, Jill. How you doing? Very well. How about you? I'm just uh, standing in the rain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it's not raining too hard where you are. Uh, oh, it is. It is. <laughs> All right. Well, the weatherman today. <laughs> well, thanks for, for joining us. Can you talk a bit, to, how serious is a charge of public mischief? Well, I, I mean, you have to start with it. It's the mayor of Surrey. It's uh, I mean, the big, biggest city by population in BC. So, and, and they appointed a special prosecutor, Richard Fowler, who I know is a, a very good defense lawyer. So the, the Crown Prosecution Service is taking it seriously. They've, they've done everything right to this point. The public mischief provisions, they're, they're there, and, and they're basically designed to make sure that people aren't complaining to the police about things that, that didn't happen. Um, and it's designed to, to make sure that the police forces aren't investigating crimes and, and diverting resources that should be spent on things that are, are serious. Uh, in this case, I think it, it, it is a very serious charge because it, it's, it's the mayor, the mayor of Surrey. So um, uh, at this point, I mean, they're going to have a break in front of the court. They're going to set some date for uh, exchange of materials and that kind of thing, if that hasn't already happened. And then uh, then they'll set a trial date at some point. Uh, it has to be done within two years. So there's a Supreme Court decision that says that has to be done. And uh, I expect most of these cases are negotiated and, uh, although there's there's very serious potential for uh, for charges or, or for the offense uh, to end up, be up to five years, more often than not, at these cases end up in provincial court and uh, they may be resolved without anyone going to jail. But uh, who knows? And in this case, so should remind people as well, this is a charge. Doug McCallum has not been convicted or found guilty of anything, uh, but exactly, he does have. Yeah. Uh, does have a court date on January 25th. Um, you mentioned kind of what the punishment can be then. So when you say up to five years, so th- does that would that be kind of the maximum punishment that you could possibly get for this? It is. It is. So it, there's two routes that you can end up in provincial court or it can end up uh, moving to Supreme Court and become an indictable offense. And I mean, there's some features of this that would suggest it should be treated very seriously because it. it it stems from a political uh, event, a political debate, and there's obviously in Surrey, uh, there's this debate about the police force. This has uh, been going on now for and continues. So uh, there's, I know that there's a faction in Surrey Council. They're, uh, and they're going to see this as very serious. Uh, and the mayor himself, I mean, there's going to be a question, I think, now coming out of this, whether he, he should step down voluntarily. There's not much that can be done to remove him if, if there's no majority in Surrey City Council. But uh, uh, this is, I think, uh, a more serious charge, or, or the events are surrounding it end up being more serious than the poor Moody mayor, uh, the situation he dealt with, and uh, he continued to be the mayor through that. So. That, that is true. I, and in fact, I was going to ask you uh, other examples, if you've seen this or, or had this happen before or could recall, uh, that is the one, uh, uh, Mayor Vagramov in Port Moody. Are there other cases, though, did, that come to mind as far as elected officials facing charges? 
Well, not not elected officials, but the thing that came to mind immediately when I was talking with my colleagues in my office was Juicy Smollett in the United States. Uh, this is this is similar to the situation, and he's, he's in trial right now in the U.S., uh, where he uh, they're accusing him essentially of inventing an event that uh, where he was assaulted. And uh, when they're pursuing these type, types of charges, they they look at everything, all the surrounding events and witnesses, and, and in this case, I believe there's video. Uh, they have to prove intent, which is always a bit of an uphill battle for the crown. But intent can they can bring the person in front of the court and, and the person's explanation for why they were they believe these things happened. I mean, they're going to have to often be there and explain it. If it doesn't make sense, that's a, a that's a big problem for them. But I'm sure I'm sure uh, Richard's looked at the videos and he's talked to all the witnesses. And uh, they're not the crown charging standard is very high uh, for these charges to be brought. So. Um, uh, it's a very serious thing for the man. Uh, and and you referenced uh, the the J.C. Smollett uh, case in the states. Uh, Smollett was actually found guilty uh, of lying about the attack in, in that case as well, just uh, not too too long ago. Um, you you right, mentioned as well, and I wanted to ask you about that because in B.C. there is such a high threshold as far as when charges are laid. Uh, they're laid, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, when the prosecution services, service believes they can win. Uh, so that would indicate they do have video or they do have something, obviously, that shows what happened. Yeah, so I have. So I, the civil cases I have, they, I've got criminal negligence cases involving car crashes and uh, sexual battery cases you know, involving I mean, serious sexual offenses against minors and spouses and things like that. And and in those cases, and, and I can think of two especially, uh, there were no, the Crown uh, had, or they recommended charges to, or the RCMP, the Vancouver Police, recommended charges to the Crown. And in both cases, they didn't pursue the criminal uh, charges. And eventually it went to civil court and the, the judges found in favor of my client against the person that uh, victimized them. So, uh, I mean, I've certainly seen it firsthand that that the crown charging standard can be a lot higher than the civil standard uh, in in very serious cases, which is too bad in many instances. Uh, in this case, obviously, though, it it met it, um, and I think that's that should signal how strong they believe the, the evidence is at this point. All right. John Green, I hope you're not still standing out in the rain. But if you are, thank you so much for doing that and for joining us today. We will leave it there. But thanks so much for your time. Have a great day, Joe. Thanks for being with us. So we will have more time throughout the show today to get your reaction to the news. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum charged with public mischief. A lot of people calling the buzz line continue to do that. And we'll share some of your comments a bit later on in the program. 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call. You can email me as well. So much more time coming up to talk about that. We wanted to shift gears a little bit, though, and talk about something else that affects a lot of people in this province, in this country, and that is long-term care and what the future of long-term care might look like, how it's already changing. And joining us to talk more about that is Dan Levitt, the CEO at Kin Village. Dan, thanks so much for being back on the show with us. Hi, Jill. Great to be here. Uh, We've seen some changes already as far as smaller long-term care homes, homes that look more like an actual home rather than a hospital. Uh, How much is that happening or how much change like that are you seeing? Well, we're seeing some. We're seeing sort of incremental steps, but we're not seeing that transformational shift that uh, many of us desire. And I think a lot of people who who live in care or who eventually will end up in care, um, we really want to see these places feel like a house 
uh, versus like a hospital. So we, we really need to see um, that, that dramatic shift from, from building something that is really a standards that date back to the hospital design to something that more feels like a house where um, I've only a few people live together, um, not, not dozens of people living together in, on the same floor. And has the reason for the more hospital, more institutional type um, of long-term care facilities, uh, it's obviously money, uh, but is it also because, so we're talking about people that need things like lifts sometimes to get in and out of bed and need medications and that kind of care? Yeah, um, definitely. I think obviously money does make a big impact here because uh, these are expensive buildings to to construct. Um, They are less expensive to construct than hospitals, but perhaps we could rethink that and think, well, what if we did have the same kind of money that a hospital has available to it to to be built and we could build it to a, a different standard? And then when you think about you know the uh, the kind of person living in that space. Um, it is feasible to build those rooms. Um, a, a standard um, new new room being built right now um, has has the capacity to have that overhead lift um, to bring to bring somebody from their bed to the the, ba- the bathroom with a shower and a proper ensuite. So it can be it can be done. I think it's really up to our, us as a society. What do we want to see um, seniors living in that kind of hospital style traditional nursing home? Um, that's been freshened up or to see us living in, in homes. And, and I know where most people would want to live. Exactly. I, I think, well, and people want to stay home for as long as they can uh, as well. Uh, we, we have seen, as mentioned, some places starting to do this. So we've seen other um, the, kind of the models of dementia villages where they are more like self-contained villages. Is that something that you'd also like to see? Absolutely. The, the Dementia Village is the one in Langley is a great example. Unfortunately, it's not funded. It hasn't kind of been accepted by, um, by society or by the health authorities as something that they're willing to, to fund. I hope that will change one day. And we know that it is changing over, I believe, in Comox. Uh, Providence Health is building one there. And I, I know that the Heather site was earmarked to have one also, the old St. Vincent's Langara, sorry, old St. Vincent's Heather site. So we do want to see those come about. And once we see those um, working and funded, I think that will become the norm. So once you leave your space, your, your household, you can wander through that village in a safe way and you have access to all the amenities that um, one would desire. When we talk about costs, though, and certainly the pandemic and what we saw unfold in long-term care homes in the beginning, uh, in some cases quite horrific, and it's really ignited that debate over private versus public. Do you think that's a debate worth having as far as do we need to look at the difference? I think we can have the debate. I think it's an important debate to have because we should look at um, what's the root cause of of the outbreaks. What's the root cause of what happened in long-term care? Is it the privates did worse than the when than the nonprofits? And when you look at things like Ontario and Quebec and compared um, the outbreaks there, um, you can see that um, the privates and the nonprofits really wasn't the issue. The real issue was the kind of design of those care homes and um, the philosophy that we all have of where we want to live. So my bias, my thought would be, if we can build these small households, if that becomes the standard, whether they're operated by government or a nonprofit or by uh, a private owner, um, the most important piece would be the actual philosophy of care and the, the space and how people live their lives. I think that's much more important. And But what about the cost then? Because the cost obviously would be more. So if we're talking about a subsidized care home or care facility or something like that, who picks up or where do we find the extra money to pay for that? 
Yeah, it's it's a very good question, and I think it's all about us prioritizing um, those things that we're expecting government to fund, and to what extent can we afford ourselves? If um, if you were um, lucky enough to own um, real estate or, or have assets, um, could you um, temporarily, while you're living there, bring that asset in? It's really one of those only times in our life where uh, for some reason we're expecting government to provide housing uh, for us when perhaps we have um, the ability financially to pay for that. And those people who don't, perhaps um, they could certainly be be funded through government. But maybe that, that housing piece we can rethink. And there's life lease models and other models we've seen in other places like Australia where, where you do bring that capital piece in and then when you pass away, your heirs would, would get most of that money back. So there are different um, financial models where we're not only depending on government to fund. Is it a good thing, do you think, then, that we're at least talking about this? Because certainly before the pandemic, this wasn't something that was, I think, top of mind for people. Even people that had loved ones in long-term care, and everybody knows there's there's issues with the system. It's, it wasn't perfect then. It's certainly not perfect now. But is it better, at least, that we're having these conversations? Yeah, it's critically, it's critically important, um, Jill. Um, the spotlight that was put on long-term care, it exposed some of our challenges that we have that many of us have known about but didn't want to talk about, that elephant in the room. And uh, I understand that uh, my, uh, my great-nephew, who he's six months old, and uh, he has a one-in-three chance of living to 100. And his, his great-grandfather, who's turning 85 next month, um, he has a one-in-three chance now of needing care, either in his house or, or in a care home. So for all of us, for them, for, for the... You know, generation in the middle, we should all be very concerned about what happens in the future for elder care. Uh, is that something then when you when you talk about needing care either in a facility or at home, do we talk enough also about how do we make it so people can stay home for longer periods of time without being isolated, without being in danger, but can stay there for for longer than than maybe they have in the past? Yeah, I think it's really important. Um, you think about the cost of living at home and who ends up uh, bearing that. Um, it, it's it's often the spouse. Um, it's often a daughter who's who's involved in supporting them. Um, there's only so many hours that you can access um, under most cases. And then how do we modify homes and how do we even navigate that system? That itself, you need um, you to become a professional advocate uh, to make sure that you can access all that. So you really need somebody um, who's supporting you through that journey. I think being alone is and not having those supports is going to be a, a tough go. That's probably where people end up living in a care home um, much more uh, possibly. So having th- those people around you and having different systems and structures in place um, in communities are really important. And I think we're going to see more and more of that going forward as we're not going to be repl- be adding so many beds on um, because of the capital costs. We're going to be much more supporting people living in their community and in their current residence. Uh, you mentioned as well this push to a more kind of house-like or home-like uh, model for long-term care. Uh, that also came out a lot in that idea of a private room versus roommates. And there was also that debate, while the private room always sounds better, there is still the argument. There are people that uh, have come forward saying, well, wait a minute, uh, there's a scenario here where somebody does have a roommate and it's their social connection and they like that. So it, it kind of, I guess, points to that whole one size doesn't fit all. Absolutely. So you think about it. So a hundred bed um, care home like uh, Kin Village, as an example, um, they're all single rooms. And uh, what if you had a couple? So could you have an adjoining room like you might see um, at a hotel, at least having that door, maybe one side becomes a living room, one side becomes the bedroom. Um, that's one way of, of making it work. And as you're saying, what if you just are a very social person, you get along with other people. So we, we shouldn't 
completely um, get rid of those multi-bedrooms. But I think the idea of you know living the last part of your life um, in one of those facilities with three other people um, and only having a curtain separating you from them, I think that's not really ideal. We, sh- we are replacing those. That's one credit we, should, we certainly should um, acknowledge in British Columbia that we are getting rid of all those. That's the top priority. But we do want to make sure that there is socialization so people aren't isolated, especially people who really want to be around others. It's important that they can socialize with others. All right. We'll leave it there for today. But Dan, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this again. Anytime, Jill. Thank you. Well, if you've been to the False Creek area lately, especially after the storms we saw last month, you might have noticed more derelict boats. In some places, you can actually see the masts sticking up through the surface of the water, the boats where they have sunk. Yesterday, there was a boat salvaged. There's another one that is submerged near Science World. And a lot of concerns are being raised about how these derelict boats are dangerous and who should be responsible for them. Well, joining me on the line now to talk more about this is John Rowe, the director of the Dead Boat Disposal Society. John, thank you so much for being with us. And greetings from a wet salt spring, and thank you for the invitation. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little damp here too, and even some snow outside of our windows. Uh, I did not. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't know there was such a thing as the Dead Boat Disposal Society. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what it is you do? Well, we were formed from our problems over in CRD and the. Cadborough Bay um, community there back in 2017 and our or primary organization, the Veins of Life Watershed Society, our directors didn't want to take responsibility. So working with the Cadborough Bay Community Association, we formed the Dead Boat Society at the time to process 14 boats legally, right? Because we've been doing this for a long period of time now. Anyways, that's how we came about. And then the federal government came up with a program, uh, two pro- three programs actually that we participated in. We moved uh, under their funding, we removed over a, over well over 100, 150, 160 boats, and then we're, we're working with the provincial government, the Song East Nation, Sailor Sea Industrial Service, and our friends at Railmax Group of Companies with uh, removing 100 more here very shortly. So we're, we're moving along quite quickly. That is good to hear. Uh, wh- who is responsible for a boat when there are, there are so many of them now that are moored? Yeah. Some of them have people living on them, some of them don't. But who is responsible if that boat is bashed up on the, the shores during a storm or if it sinks? Well, technically, it's the owner if you can find them. But due to uh, lack of legislation, I mean, it has been changed now to Bill C-64. It, it puts the onus on the owner. But what happens is there's a process now that it goes through and uh, that's been agreed upon all the agencies. It's a dead boat society. We're at the bottom of the pecking order here. So they, the vessels are concerned process are looking for immediate environmental threats like leaking oil and things like that. It goes off to Transport Canada Receiver Rex. And between those two agencies, they decide immediately whether they're going to pull it out. They can either get the owner to sign it over or they can go through the seizure process right now, which takes them any th- between 30 and 45 days. If they decide not to take it out, if it's not an immediate threat, it, it can sit there up until an organization such as ourselves comes along. And it can take us up to uh, uh, six months to a year to, to legally seize it and, of course, find the monies to get rid of. So it's a complicated process. Hmm. And how much does it cost to generally salvage or get rid of a boat like that? 
Well, because of the time frames we're operating under and the constraints with our funders, it can uh, it can run up pretty expensive between twenty and forty thousand dollars, depending on the size of boat. We've had some we pulled out in eighty to hundred thousand, eighty eight ninety foot boats down thirty feet of water. Hmm. So it can run up costs can run up exponentially. It's the time you find finding them and processing them that we're trying to get um, more expediency in, and then finding the monies to if we can. We work with heavy industry. If we can find more boats to do at one time, we can bring down the cost exponentially. And is that why do you think some people, if the boats are already kind of derelict and they're then damaged in a storm, if it's not worth anything, is somebody really going to shell out ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to do the right thing and get it out of the water? Not a bit. Uh, if you look on Facebook, there's dozens of sites for cheap old boats sort of thing, and, and people are coming up. We don't uh, get involved in the, the liveaboard situation, but that's what people are using them for. They're coming from central parts of Canada with no idea how our, our climate can change rapidly sort of thing. And, and not, you know, in these boats, most of them are... Sh- most of them, sh- we should have a process in place for getting rid of them faster, made in BC with working with heavy industry, very similar to the cars and tires and batteries and bottles. It's run by industry and, and uh, you know, it's pretty efficient. And this is what we need to do into the future. Right. So would it work better then if rather than having all of these different levels of government and different groups kind of having a, a piece in this, if we had one body that was in charge? Yes, and that's what I, well, our organization has been lobbying to do from the get-go here is to get industry at the table, get government at the table, First Nations at the table, and come up with a plan, uh, A, to find them. A lot of these bays and inlets, they, 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 there's boats down there that should be coming out. You look at the, the, the de- deprivation to the environment, both in eelgrass and uh, these boats breaking up, they just don't stay down. And so, yeah, we need a, a long-term strategy in BC, made in BC, of going from one end of the coast to the other to begin with, and then a, a future plan from there. Uh, there's a lot of garbage right now, even on Vanier Park on the beach there yes. that's washed ashore. Uh, people have kind of gathered it uh, near one of the garbage cans. Uh, but you kind of touched yep. on this. What are the, the other environmental issues of if we leave these boats in the water? Well, you look at a fiberglass boat, per se, we're all on the gung-ho of garbage bags or plastic garbage bags getting them banned and everything else. But if you look at the, you take the volume weight per per garbage bag in a 25-foot fiberglass boat, it's equivalent to 480,000 plastic bags. So if you figured we pulled out 260 of them now, you can figure out just how many plastic bags are down there. These things don't stay complete. They break up particularly in the marine environment, in a pretty fast state, and they spread all over the place. They, the oceans, the winds come in and stir up the, the groundwaters uh, and, and destroy the habitat and end up on our beaches, end up further and further into the water. Then you're looking at all the foam in there. And everything in a boat today is plastic. Even if it's a steel boat, it's probably got all the interior is plastic. So we need to get this, these things out of the water right away. And do you think there needs to be more enforcement in so that people aren't just leaving their boats and and saying, oh, well, somebody else will deal with this, knowing that they can get away with doing that? Yes, and that's what the problem with Bill C-64 is, is, uh, is 
uh, to address that. But the problem is, A, we don't know who owns the boats. The federal government, Transport Canada, has got an inquiry right now of how we're going to pay for this into the future. But you're looking five or ten years down the road. There's still nothing in place to say, let's put BC, uh, the License Bureau, in charge of boats sort of thing. So we know if you've got a boat on the water, regardless of size, engine or no engine, it better have a name and a number on there and somebody you can contact so that you can deal with it right away and hold those people responsible. Which I think a lot of people would like to see, especially since, as we yes. see, every time there's a storm, this happens. Yes. Every time we, you know, we dress them all over the coast. My son and myself were up to, just up into Kinloth, and we were helping the First Nations up there, but they're everywhere on our coast. And you're talking thousands, thousands and thousands of boats here. And a lot of them, they don't even know that are down there. Uh, or Oak Bay, we just pulled out eight out of there. And, you know, if nobody, none of the agencies knew they were down there. We knew where they were down there. But, you know, so we need to inventory and yeah, hold people responsible. All right. And one other question uh, before I let you go. Any ideas on how we can remove the barge? I'm looking at it. I follow it online. It's quite entertaining. <laughs> They're doing a good job there. It is. Uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it is actually. I, I, it's on Facebook there in the English Bay there. It's actually pretty entertaining. They're doing a good job. It's all tidal water. That's a lot of weight on that boat. And, you know, they might have to bring in, you know, different type of flotation and things like that. But I'm sure they'll get it. It doesn't look too damaged from my point, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, just a t- it's just a time thing. We need, that, we need high, high tides to get that thing off the beach. All right. John wrote, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Merry Christmas, Jill. Bye-bye. We are going to talk a bit more about Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum a bit later on in the program. Right now, though, shifting gears. And joining me is Constable Dustin Klassen with the Delta Police Department. And he is going to be heading off to Europe to work on a very significant cyber crime investigation. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, sure. No problem. Tell me a little bit about the connection between local ransomware attacks and how this is leading you to take this trip to Europe. Sure, no problem. Uh, so when we talk about ransomware, we know that uh, local businesses are being attacked by uh, bad actors, but these bad actors can be located throughout the world. Um, you know, it's really difficult to tell where exactly they're located. Uh, but because these uh, bad actors are attacking anyone globally, uh, it is a good idea when we investigate these ransomware attacks to try to uh, contact out other law enforcement agencies uh, within uh, both here in Canada and uh, internationally. And in this case, it would be uh, Europol that we reached out to. And is there a specific case in Delta? I know Delta Police flagged this cyber attack that took place on a on a business. It was described as a mid-sized business in Delta. Is it that specific case that sparked this investigation, or is it more because of the increase in these types of crimes? No, it was in response to that uh, that case. So it's uh, as part of that investigation that uh, we. Uh, as part of the investigation, we uh, received malicious software from the uh, victim company, and we can take uh, identifiers uh, from those uh, from those files, whether it be the file name or uh, a hash value that's kind of like a digital fingerprint for the file. We can take those values and submit them uh, through to uh, Europol in this case, uh, and then those uh, identifiers will be disseminated amongst uh, member uh, member states within Europe to see if there's any. Uh, associations that we can make to files that are actively being investigated there. 
Hmm. Can you talk a bit about what happened to this company? Because it sounds like something that any company or anybody could fall victim to this and not know uh, how to protect themselves or not know that they're about to be the victim of a cybercrime. Most certainly, Jill. Uh, so in this particular incident, um, what it appears to uh, to be is that the, the the company uses a Microsoft Exchange server, which many uh, companies uh, use. And there was uh, some known vulnerabilities that were uh, patched by Microsoft back in uh, March of this year. Um, and for companies that either haven't patched or didn't you know, employ the patches correctly, uh, this gave uh, bad actors or cyber criminals the chance to uh, scan for these, uh, these uh, internet-connected networks and to breach uh, security on those networks, gaining access to you know, companies' uh, personal uh, intellectual property, uh, personal employee records, uh, all sorts of data that you would uh, maintain on those uh, networks. Um, in, in the case of ransomware, what uh, what they will generally do is once they've gained access, uh, they'll uh, they'll look around. They might exfiltrate some data, so they might steal that intellectual property, and then uh, at, at a certain point, they will then encrypt the entire network and then demand a ransom uh, to gain. Uh, for the company to gain access to those uh, those data again. And in this case, do you know, did the company have to pay the ransom to get their information back? Well, you know, if we look at, uh, at positives from this file, uh, this company did not have to pay uh, to get uh, back into their system. And the reason for that is that they maintained uh, robust backups of their systems. And that's one of the tips that we would uh, suggest for uh, companies. You know, if, uh, if you're going to have a network that is uh, internet connected, so connected out to the wide world, uh, you're going to want to maintain backups. You're going to want to make sure that those backups work and that they're not actually connected to the, uh, to the internet. So you want to keep them offline is what we would call. Okay. And in this particular case, then, you then shared this information and you mentioned Europol. And is that what led to the link or finding out that this isn't a one-off, this was part of a much bigger organized crime operation? That's exactly right. So as soon as we submitted it over to uh, Interpol, uh, it turns out that Interpol uh, already had several uh, files that they were dealing with amongst their member states. And uh, as a result of that, we uh, ended up liaising with them and were ultimately uh, invited to uh, join the investigative group. So what will you be doing? I'm guessing you can't tell us all of the details, but what do you anticipate you're going to be doing then when you travel to Europe? Sure, sure. Um, so when we travel to Europe, what we're going to be doing is bringing uh, evidence from our file and uh, with both our own digital forensic experts uh, from Canada, uh, as well as other uh, digital forensic experts from the other countries, we're going to be analyzing that data and seeing if there's any other leads that we can get uh, that you know, might lead us towards ultimately who, uh, who conducted this attack. Are they difficult investigations given that whoever's doing this, they could be in one place one day, another place the next day, that it's not as though they have to work out of a particular place. And I would guess if they're cyber criminals, they're probably pretty good at covering their tracks. Well, you know, I guess it depends on, uh, on you know, different groups of bad actors. But uh, by all means, these are very difficult to solve. Uh, when you uh, factor in things like uh, VPNs or virtual private networks uh, being used by the suspects, um, sometimes they'll change their infrastructure, you know, monthly or maybe even weekly or even daily. Uh, so it's very hard to take, you know, these uh, these clues, these digital clues that we're getting uh, from our investigation and really pin it to uh, a particular group or an individual. 
What do you know so far about this group? And again, obviously, this this company in Delta that was targeted, but I understand as well, this is a group with much bigger ties or suspected as well in uh, the theft of millions of dollars in cryptocurrencies and other thefts. Yeah, and uh, Joe, just in the interest of not uh, compromising the investigation, um, I, I'll just limit to say that we know they are, uh, you know, targeting uh, international companies. That is, uh, companies the world over, um, and that uh, you know it is uh, it is a fairly big deal, and uh, we want to do our best to uh, make sure that they're uh, held to account. I understand your department as well in Delta has grown because of the need for this, because of the increase in crime. What are you seeing as far as the increase in these types of crimes? Well, um, when we're talking about uh, cyber crime, we're really talking about two types of crime, which would be cyber enabled crimes. And this would be, for example, you know, uh, you could before computers came along, you could harass people, but now you can harass people using encrypted phone apps, uh, using all sorts of uh, technology to uh, obfuscate who you are. And so um, we do investigate uh, cyber-enabled crimes, but uh, also we investigate uh, crimes against computers themselves. So in this case, uh, being that it's ransomware, uh, the offense was really on the data and the computer uh, system for, uh, for a business in your Delta, right? Uh, one of the types that we're seeing a lot of prevalence right now is uh, crypto investment scams. Uh, so generally speaking, this is where we'll have a, uh, a suspect will contact uh, you know, a potential investor, we'll call them, or victim would be more appropriate. Uh, and uh, through uh, sometimes just cold, uh, cold call chatting with them, uh, they'll introduce themselves as uh, Bitcoin investors that are doing very well. And that they can uh, make them, uh, you know, instant millionaires with these uh, investment schemes that they're uh, they're laying out to them. Um, generally speaking, what will happen in these cases is the uh, victims, not knowing very much about Bitcoin, will invest into these, uh, you know, into these uh, companies, uh, not knowing that these companies are a scam. And once they've deposited those monies, uh, they don't ever see them again. Mm. Uh, generally speaking, the victims, when they try to withdraw their funds, they're told that they owe more taxes or. Uh, various other fees, and this is really just the uh, the suspects trying to glean a little bit more money from them. And so what can people do? And I know we could talk for hours about this, but if you were to give any <laughs> advice to people to, to protect yourself against this, what's the number one thing people and businesses can do? Well, if we're talking about the crypto investment scams, I would uh, strongly suggest people uh, visit uh, BC, Securities Commission, uh, sorry, BC Securities Commission uh, Invest Rate website. Uh, I don't have the URL with me in front of me right now, but uh, it is uh, easily found online. Uh, there's a lot of really great information that the BC Securities Commission has uh, posted up there, and it, it really allows us to educate ourselves about, you know, what what is appropriate, and also to learn about, uh, you know, maybe some investment companies that are to be avoided. Um, when it comes to businesses to protect their networks, there's really three things I wanted to suggest. Uh, first, we've already talked about, which is backups. We really want to make sure that we maintain backups, that they're offline, and test them every now and again to make sure that they're going to work. Um, second thing, and uh, this is very, very important as well, is keep your systems up to date. Uh, so if you think about Microsoft, uh, Microsoft issues patches uh, you know, almost on a, on a weekly or monthly basis. Um, and if you're not paying attention to that, it may be that your systems haven't been updated, and now you're at risk of having a, a data breach into your networks from an unwanted person. Uh, so if you can keep on top of those updates, uh, that's really a, a strong, uh, strong uh, position to take for uh, for cyber hygiene. 
the third item that I wanted to mention is uh, companies really owe it to themselves to train their employees uh, to you know prevent them from falling victims to phishing attacks. Uh, so this would be where a bad actor will send an email pretending to be uh, someone else. Uh, maybe it might be a service provider to the company or it might be pretending to be an employee of that company. Uh, and the, the goal there is to try to get them to click on links. Um, and the problem there is if the employee does go ahead and click on that link, merely clicking on that link could lead to them uh, you know, uh, infecting their network with malware. Um, the other thing is uh, it might lead them to a page where it's asking them to put in uh, you know, personal or business, uh, business information uh, in order to access uh, a system. Uh, we know that organized crime groups uh, and cyber criminals are using phishing as a, a mechanism for getting into these networks. So if we train up our employees, uh, hopefully we can try to mitigate that problem. All right. Good advice. Uh, when are you off to Europe for this? Uh, leaving on Saturday. All right. Well, hopefully we can talk to you when you get back. But thanks so much for making the time for us today. Not at all, Jill. I appreciate it and have yourself a great day.